I mean, I guess you could say on the one hand that not all bubbles are are the product of inflationary credit expansion. So that's that's one thing. But but of those that are, crypto definitely would would mitigate that because if crypto became like a dominant you know monetary system, for one, it's because it wouldn't be there wouldn't be a one size fits all you know, monetary unit, They're, like we've all talked about, there'd be various, there'd be probably be a whole a series, a slew, a bucket of, of medium of exchanges that are, that are all valid and, and widely, widely used. So no project would have a monopoly over the whole monetary unit, right? So if, if somebody wanted to change the code and increase how Bitcoin was created or how ETH was created or whatever, they could do that. But since they wouldn't be in charge of the the economy's money, it would only affect the users of that money. It wouldn't be an economy-wide thing, right? And people would probably would, would know about this and they would be looking to get out of that money. It's being debased. <laughs> Put your uh, investment somewhere else, right? Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan, who are experts in their field. Today's topic is about economic bubbles and blockchain. We hope you enjoy episode 10 of Specific Knowledge. All right, welcome guys. Episode ten. Can you believe it? I'm excited. We we made it. We hit our we hit the uh, the high water mark. Yeah, we're I, I look forward to this time with you guys every week. <laughs> so it's 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 it sure is a lot of fun to be able to yeah. delve into these topics uh, uh, deeper and and explore this, especially as as the markets continue to emerge and unfold. It really gives us a lot to chew on. Yeah, absolutely. Right now is uh, a bit wild. Um, before we get to our topic today, which is we're talking about bubbles and blockchain and uh, you know some stuff that Stephen Horowitz uh, discusses, you know he recently passed in July, so we want to uh, or sorry June, and we want to honor um, his recent works and and his ideas and how they relate to Mises and, and Hayek and you know everything blockchain and, and market cycles. So before we get to that though, um, I'm just curious, check in. How are you guys doing? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing fine. I've been keeping busy with uh with trying to work and develop our website uh, wise wisebeyondbitcoin.com lucas and myself have been uh, spending some time over spreadsheets and emails trying to get our get everything get our, our ducks in the row and make sure we have all the elements included that we want to focus on and um we're getting closer so i'm i'm happy to say and what else um the wife and the daughter are out of town. They're going to come back today. So I've had, I've been a bachelor for a week and a half. <laughs> so I'll be picking them up at the airport. I have some cleaning to do after we finish our talk. <laughs> so nice. that's, that's essentially what I've been up to. And Lucas, that's, how about you? Yeah, that's been uh, the focus the, the last week. I've been really excited uh, taking this time to, to work with Ryan and get our website developed. It's, it's been fun. Um, because so many different ecosystems in, in crypto have really started to mature and take off. And it's it's kind of uh, forced us to look at ecosystems that weren't even around a few months ago. Um, you know, not, not to 
pour too much in, but you also, you look at with what's going on with wise token and other cryptos out there. And it's just, it, it's fuel to the fire. It's really exciting um, to see all the de- DeFi development and what's going on in the world of smart contracts. So uh, yeah, I'm, I look forward to finishing this off with Ryan soon and being able to, to share more of those updates as in the coming weeks. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot going on over at wise uh, super exciting and we've been expanding our team as well. We just hired a new Solidity developer finally, which I'm very happy with. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Solidity is the underlying code for the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and they're hard to find. <laughs> they're extremely hard to find uh, a good one. So uh, very happy Demand with that. these days. Yeah, there are. I think the, st- the statistic is like 50 to 60,000 of them. And like 98% have like really high paying jobs already. And... Yeah, good luck getting you know a good one who you know just right time, right place, and so it worked out. Yeah, really excited. Congrats, that's awesome. Thanks, but yeah, guys, let's uh, jump into this topic, talking about uh, you know macroeconomics and how it emphasizes you know the role of central banks in creating credit fueled bubbles. If anyone wants to break down what what that means, well, you want to take that or should I start off? Ryan, with? jump, jump, jump on this one, brother. Okay, well, I'll jump on the grenade. <laughs> <laughs> all right so well bubbles we all we're all familiar with bubbles we've lived i mean if you're you know if you're an adult or you've lived through a couple of them recently we had the dot-com bubble mm-hmm. in 2000 99 2000 where the um the stock the stock values of internet companies shot up to great heights and then crashed and then there was the housing bubble in 2007 and 8 that was even more recent where and we're and we you know in many ways that's still continuing but that was a, a story of um, assets tied to mortgages being having a, a huge secondary market and then the underlying the mortgage the homes went up in price and then so there's a lot of speculation and and then uh, as things tend to go there was a crash and those underlying assets fell and and that was the housing bubble and that led to some foreclosures and and uh, loss of loss of properties for many people who got caught up in that maybe they took a mortgage out at the wrong time or or refinanced at the wrong time with an, a loan they didn't understand and the interest rate reset. And there's various ways this played out. But essentially what a bubble is, is it's a, it's a, temp, it's a massive increase in the economic activity and prices, usually confined to certain sectors. So housing is a popular sector. Uh, technology is another sector that tends to have bubbles. Um, so these are, these are things that that last typically a few years, three to four years, sometimes a little longer. And then they have what's what uh, characterizes a bubble is a hard crash. So instead of it just kind of gently growing into the into the uh, horizon, there's a there's a moment where reality hits and and the whole narrative that was under under guard uh, that was supporting the, these asset values switches rather. So if it's if it's homes, if it's dot com stocks, you know, whatever, there's there's a big a moment of realization that hey this is not worth what we paid for it and it's not going to be worth that going forward and we're going to sell it now and try to cash out so things the moment so is and bubbles usually take a long time to build they, they don't happen overnight it's not like it just go things don't just go up real fast overnight they, they gradually grow go and then they at the end of the bubble maybe there's a manic mania phase where it goes parabolic and you'll see massive price increases and that's they tend to call that a blow off top and then there's a very violent and sudden correction down. So that's the na- that's the general 
the general idea of what a bubble is. The more interesting question is what causes these things? Why do they happen? And, and then the secondary related question is, well, if, if they're happening, what do we do about it? What's, well, how do we, how do we fix this? One of the, one of the theories that has been developed over, over the, over the years has been to, to explain why bubbles occur has been, has been known as the Austrian business cycle theory. And the, one of the first proponents of this was a man named Mises, Ludwig von Mises, and then his student Hayek, who, who we like to, we're fans of, we like to talk about. They, they're the ones who developed this, this idea the furthest in, in, the, in, in the Austrian tradition. There was other, there's other scholars and economics who have different takes on it. But the Aust- I mean, we're going to focus on the Austrian one today because it's, it's the one that's relevant to, to blockchain. And, and, and I think it's more relevant to explaining why bubbles happen in the first place. And so, what's going on right now with the uh, central bank money printing. Exactly. It's relevant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So and, unlike and, other. I was just jumping in with what you said, Ryan, uh, to explain more on the bubbles. You mentioned .com, housing. Another one that I was wanting to jump in and say is, is student loans. Student loans is, a, Very good. is this uh, elephant in the room that isn't being spoken about. But it seems like these bubbles, um, one thing that they're all commonly marked by are um, uh, political um, um, subsidization. There are it's it's markets where it has been easy for new credit or cheap credit to flow wherever is easiest for that credit to flow. And it's often politically directed. Often you can find why it's the housing market with the Fannie Mae salad. You you can find, oh, all these home loans are being subsidized by the government. Oh, all these student loans are being subsidized. Oh, all these banks are being bailed out and are allowed to rehypothecate and make very, very risky decisions knowing that then FDIC of sorts will bail them out. So um, when we talk about these bubbles and and the the role, um, I guess I guess the the role that money plays. It's it's not just the interest rate or the it's not just the money, but it's it's the I guess it's the mechanisms in which we allow the money to be created. I think that's a lot of it. Bitcoin yes. is mined by miners, and and that's the way money is created. We have a market, a monetary system that actually allows. Um, money to be created through student loans, through through creating debt instruments, allows um, uh, you know mortgages to be uh, put on the books without um, the proper oversight. I think that's a good point because it's not just a matter of of a a central bank dumping a bunch of money out of a helicopter, right, and just and it just crediting everybody equally. That's 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 sometimes the way it's talked about, but really in reality. The way money enters the economy in the, at a certain point at a, at, a, at a central bank or a commercial bank, and then the when it and it's loaned, it, it takes a certain path, right? And this is an this is part of the Austrian business cycle theory that made it stand out from the others. So it they were the Austrians were focused on the path money takes in the economy. So who gets the loan first, and who and who maybe and what that does to their to their prices and their and their accounting. And then how they where the money would been, then be sent after that in payment for for other goods, right? So it, it it could pick a path, and this path distorts prices as it as it goes, right? And this is uh, known as Cantillon effects. If you if you read Mises and you and you, he talks about Cantillon effects, and you wonder what that's about. Cantillon effects is the way that money trans uh, trans versus <laughs> the way the money moves through the economy 
has different effects depending on where it goes first. So if it goes into one market, it's going to raise distort prices there before it goes to another, right? And so you get people who get the money first have they get the usually get the full value of it uh, before their price before their prices have changed, right? So you imagine your business, you get you get a loan from a bank, it's new money creation. You're able to pay your suppliers. And your costs haven't gone up. Nobody has said, okay, we're going to charge more for these inputs now because that money hasn't made its way through the economy, hasn't created those, those bidding pressures. But as it does go through and as those payments are made and it, and it carves a path, eventually people start to see, oh, there's more money. There's more demand chasing things. So now I'm going to raise my costs, right? I'm not going to offer those things to the same price. So if you're one of the late people who gets the money, this new money, you're now facing higher prices than you would have before for, for your inputs. And now in the Austrian school, we talk about that as being relative prices. You'll see that term. It's another term you'll see that it distorts relative prices. Well, what are relative prices? Relative prices are just, the, you're just a business's margins, right? So selling, price, selling prices, what they get from the consumer, and then their, their cost of production, their input costs, whether it's labor or rent or whatever. So the way that so you have two different kinds of prices that are that are companies looking at their costs and their and their in um, their revenues, <clears throat> and the way that this money, the way that money flows, can distort these relative prices and make these margins bigger or smaller, depending on where you're at in the pattern. Right, that has big effects for the economy. And and this is, I'll cede the floor to Lucas, but this kind of opens the explanation to what's unique about the Austrian business cycle theory, it, and that it's that money is not is not neutral it the way it enters the economy who gets it first how it's channeled has real effects on margins and profits and then people respond to that right they respond to those changes in prices they respond to those margin changes sometimes they'll expand they'll expand their operations to capture that margin real quick ryan um i think maybe it's something i was thinking about we have, I'm looking at the report right now. I just pulled it up on my computer. Pretty much the past three or four months uh, have been 5% inflation. Uh, there are a lot of people I know who have just gotten raises that are about 3.3% for their six month review. So I think there's like what you're talking about. There's a delay in this money actually getting to people in, in terms of salary. Yeah, other things are going. I just went out to buy, I shoot film photography and I just went out to buy some film the other day and it's three times more expensive than it was four months ago. So right. is that a similar? That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, cool. that's from an individual's perspective. Now yeah. think about it in terms of a business, right? And how the, these changes could affect how you bid for capital and labor or, or how you think about it. Many times a bubble in, involves not just prices going up, but prior to prices going up, there's actually an ex, uh, an increase in economic activity, right? So imagine, so the opposite of what you're saying, you're seeing your 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 wages are, are going up less than the costs, right? So you would be having, you'd have less money to, to work with. But if you're a business and you're in the early stages of an inflation, it's the opposite. Your revenues are going up, your costs are staying the same. Oh yeah, I was talking about the guy, all his cameras were yeah. sold out. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So that's what makes the expansion in a, of economic activity happen. People see opportunities that are in the prices, right? There's profit to be made that wasn't there earlier. And they try to capture that. And then in doing so, they expand their operations. They hire, 
they they create more maybe it's a new factory they build they break ground on whatever um but the idea is they're expanding now if you think back i don't know how familiar people are with their with economics but in intro to economics there's this concept of a production possibilities frontier we call it a ppf for short as an acronym but all it is is a curve that shows sustainable combinations of capital, uh, I'm sorry, of production and consumption. So the idea here is that there's so many things in the economy, right? Uh, there's so many people and everything can either be used to produce more stuff or, to, or it can be used in consumption, right? We can take a hammer and melt it down and turn it to an iPod or we can use it to build houses, right? Or we could, we could take corn in the field and eat it all and turn it into food, or we could use it as seed corn, right? So that things have multiple uses. The problem with an inflation driving the economic expansion is that eventually you hit full capacity. You end up using your resources to their fullest amount. There's no more slack in the system to, be, to, to, be, to, um, to bring on, right? And so what that means is, is that if you're on the PPF, if you're on that curve, you've used all of your resources to their fullest extent. And, and the issue is, is that in a bubble that we go over that line, the, the economy starts utilizing things beyond, its, um, beyond what's actually possible. So there's plans to produce houses. Meanwhile, there's plans to produce new factories. And meanwhile, consumers aren't, aren't uh, saving anymore. People are buying more. They're getting buying cars and going into debt and credit card debt and they're eating out. So everybody starts consuming. Meanwhile, the production side is expanding. And those two things don't work together. If the production side is going to expand, then there has to be some kind of reduction in consumption to, to, to free the resources up to send to that to the production side so they can expand production. But if both the consumer side and the producer side are expanding in tandem, what you end up doing is having a like a tug of war over scarce resources. And eventually that the price system is going to break and there's going to be a, a realization that we've overutilized ourselves. We've used too much, too many resources and we've consumed too much. We've saved not enough. And that's that, that reorganization, that realization is the bust. That's the bust phase of the uh, cycle. Beautifully, beautifully described. Mm -hmm. And it brings me back into the student loans because as you describe it, I'm just imagining not all bubbles are just three to four year cycles. Some of them are insidious. Some of them can can be built up for, for 10, 15, 20 years, um, depending upon if it's how it's allowed to sustain. I mean, the student loan bubble crisis is one of those where you can, it, it, it basically, everything you described, you can look you could look at how many colleges, how many universities, how many online universities, how expensive a college tuition has become every decade. You could see it's become more expensive and more expensive. And, and, and the amount of job creation that has come around universities. Um, I administration. Mean, it, 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 they've, administration. They've hired a lot of administrators. It, it's a huge business. And when that you take, you imagine when the subsidies stop, when that credit fuel gets taken away, you look at how much of that is unsupported, how much of that it won't be able to, you know, it's, it's that divergence of signals. Right. Or of wants. Right. So I think we've done a pretty good job of explaining how money expansion can create a bubble and how that's a problem, how that's problematic. So the other side of this story, if we're going to talk about Steve Horowitz and his, his, um, 
his contributions to this discussion, it would be, it, we got to do the Keynesian story, right? Cause that's like, we're, we're building a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and we've just made the peanut butter half. And that's normally when people stop. If, if you're into Austrian economics, you can, you can um, go as far as we've gone so far right here. And just, that's kind of where you stop. You, you, that's, that's monetary theory for you. It's money printing creates bubbles, instability, um, there's trans, there's trans, there's effects on the economy that hit different people in different ways. And that that's, and that's a big story. So it's not wrong, but it's, it's also not complete. There's a, this is a great way to understand bubbles, how bubbles occur, why booms occur, but it's also necessary to see what, what happens in a bust and what's going on there. And the Austrian story is actually incomplete in that sense. Um, and I'll give you an example of how that is. So Mises is kind of the guy who got started, got this understanding of business cycle theory started from the Austrian school. But he was careful not to say that all expansions of money create a bubble. He knew he built into his, his work a framework of money supply, but he also included money demand. So it's, it's he didn't, so he didn't just look at supply and, and just stop there and say that all supply increases are inflationary. He considered the context of demand in his story. So what that means is that if you're cre- increasing the supply of money in a period where people are demanding more money, and what that means is not de- and demanding it to hold, that's in economics, that's kind of what that means. When you have monetary demand, it doesn't mean you're going out spending money. It means the opposite. You're not spending money. You're demanding the money itself. And the reason why you're asking, well, why would, why would anybody demand money itself unless they wanted to immediately turn around and spend it? And the reason is, is because it's like a, it's a, uh, it's a way of uh, having consumption when it's a way of maintaining, it's a way of having consumption in the future when you're not sure exactly what you're going to consume or how much or when you don't know what you're going to want to buy later on, but you know, you have money, you can buy whatever you want. Right. So it's a bit of a hedge against risk is, is the way it's described. And the more uncertainty there is in the economy, the more you think, oh, my job might not hold or, the, or demand for these goods might shift and might not be there or your income, you know, for whatever reason, if you're uncertain about your income, then holding more money and demanding more money makes sense. Because if you lose your job and you have a, a nice stack of money set aside, well, at least you can pay your bills for a few months before, uh, before you have to get another job, right? So there's a relationship between monetary demand, money demand and, or demand for money itself and economic uh, uncertainty, right? So as uncertainty increases, demand for money tends to increase. And, that, and the opposite of that is that the velocity of money slows because if, if people are demanding more money, they're not spending as much. So what, what does that mean? That's, that's, that's the Keynesian, that's essentially what the Keynesian story is about depressions and recessions is that... Um, some, they, they don't trace it back to an inflationary bubble, but essentially they trace it back to people's animal spirits shifting and people becoming more fearful of the future. So they stop spending and they, they start demanding money more. And then that's, that slowing, that slowing expenditure stream hits all hits different companies at different times, just like the other story did with money hitting the economy. When it comes out, it, it also takes a path. It's not all at once right? It doesn't hit the economy all at once. It, it starts in one area and maybe goes to another. And as one firm loses sales, it, it can't pay its inputs. So it'll, you know, and then that next firm that was waiting for those payments has to then stop paying, paying for its suppliers. And so you just get layoffs and, and, um, 
And this can be somewhat explained by a concept called sticky prices. You'll hear prices are sticky. And if they weren't sticky, then it wouldn't, then none of this would be a problem. So if, if prices would immediately go down and re and correct to, um, to kind of, um, to, to being in unison with what, what the, with to be inconsistent with people's spending habits, right? If prices would fall just as quickly as people stop spending money, then there would be no unemployment period. There'd be no idled resources. There'd be none of these things. The economy would just move on, move ahead. The same real, um, combinations of, of labor and, and capital wouldn't continue. Everything would just continue at lower prices, right? So instead of making uh, $20 an hour, you, you're, you're, uh, you, would be, you would say, okay, I'll just take, I'll take 12 or I'll take 15, right? And everybody agreed to those wage cuts. And if all, and if all companies would say, yeah, I, won't, I, won't, I don't need to have $10,000 for that used car, I'll take six. You know? So if all these instantaneous price adjustments downwards would happen, then we would have no bust. The, the recession bust phase would not exist. But, it, but this doesn't happen. People... There's a, fir a first mover question. Well, you know, it, who's going to lower their prices first? So there's all these kind of game theory issues that come up. But essentially what you could say is that prices tend to be sticky and that it takes time for them to fall. It takes time for them to rise too. It goes both ways. So what this means is that in a period where there's an aggregate demand shortage, which is, this is Keynesian language, where people aren't spending money, the fact that prices don't fall means that there's going to be idle resources. So take an example, a company, labor, the laborers don't want to take pay, a wage cut, but a wage cut has to happen in order for them, to, for them to be profitable. So what they end up doing is just laying people off, right? You don't want to take a wage cut. We're just going to lay off, lay off so many people, right? And, and then that, that happens you know, all throughout the economy. So the Austrian theory was great at ex explaining the bust, but you need these this sticky prices aggregate demand story to understand the. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The Austrian theory was great at explaining the boom, but you need this sticky prices aggregate demand layer that Keynes brought up in order to understand the bust. And and uh, this was something that economists at Steve Horowitz level were were struggling with. I mean, he he would have seen the the uh, correctness of the Austrian theory, but when he's looking at the Great Depression. And trying to understand what made that so long, why did this contraction happen so long? Steve realized that that Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman's story, and Anna, Anna Schwartz, they made a they wrote a book where they analyzed the Great Depression. He realized their story about about sticky prices and, and aggregate demand, the Keynesian story, was actually right, and that the Rothbardian Austrian story on the Great Depression had limits, and and this was because Rothbard had taken an extreme stance and thought that any money creation was was inflationary and that he was a, so he he kind of put forward put forward a hundred percent reserve um ideal where banks would hold reserves and only create deposits or loans that could be one-to-one -one, uh, backed by reserves this is a hundred percent reserve standard where no inflation no monetary inflation would ever be possible right so Steve was kind of reacting against that, knew that wasn't going to be viable because of the fact that, that of, of what Milton Friedman had said and what others had said about, about the Great Depression and, this, and, and what we knew about sticky prices and the, and the aggregate demand links. So he, he was trying to figure out a way to incorporate the truth he saw in the Austrian business cycle theory 
with these other points that Keynesians and other people, monetarists were making about the need for money in an aggregate demand um, depression situation. And he figured out a way to weld these things together and, and along, along with, while staying true to the Austrian school, but also saying that, hey, you know, for these reasons, there are times when money, when expansions of money and credit make sense. And so we can go deeper into that, what the details of all that. But I just kind of wanted to make that point clear that this is a bit of a peanut butter and jelly, you know, combining things that, that are, that are, um, that are unique and separate and, and finding harmony, uh, a center, like a, a harmony in, in the combination that's novel that other people haven't pointed to. Would you say that, um, you know, you mentioned prices are sticky, that that bust side of the the aggregate demand uh, not catching up and ma- maintaining with with the new prices i almost feel that that's always been the other side of the austrian business cycle theory uh, it's almost another way of describing what they already covered with this money we come back to money is not neutral I, I, it's almost prices being sticky is the underbelly yes. on the bus side of prices we've already determined that prices are not yes money you're 100 right so when we sit there coming later on saying, well, how come prices? Well, we've already determined that that the money creation is not neutral. You're going to have certain industries where the prices aren't going to change. Well, let me elaborate that. on that. At the, time, the different time horizons, you're going to have people that are going to hold out on changing their prices because that uncertainty, that fear of that not knowing of the future uh, more people are more equipped to to ride out the storm to to buy yes. assets at pennies on the dollar. So it's a, so. What it's you're like saying a, is is why didn't they take their their priors and take them seriously and 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 take the what they know to be true and and say and and look at the whole economy that way instead of just looking at one side and applying a sep- a separate set of rules for the other side, right? So there's like there's one set of rules for the bubble, but when it came to the bus, we just forgot all that. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Apply is the same. It's hard to say why that happened. But when you read Mises and Hayek, and Roth, more so Rothbard, I can't. No, I'm gonna have to sit, pull back on Hayek. I don't know. Mises and Rothbard. When you read them, I don't know what happened. But somewhere along the lines, they stopped thinking about sticky prices and just imagined that prices could adjust immediately. And here's where the seed of this comes from. There's a debate about gold standards. This is separate from monetary bubble issues. But there was a debate about the gold standard. And there was one side that said that it was uh, impossible to have a gold standard because there wasn't enough gold to, um, to, serve, to, 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 to be, there wasn't enough gold to go around. That was the idea. The supply of gold was too small to go around to be a, a monetary unit. There would, be, there's a sh- there would be shortages. And Mises would, was response to that was in Rothbard too. The response was any amount of gold, any supply of gold that you have will be enough to serve as money. Because what happens is, is just that the unit, of, we'll just go to smaller and smaller units, right? We'll go to grains if we don't use ounces, right? And so, and while that's probably true in, in, a, in a long run sense, right? In the short term, there would be a change in, if, if you had, if say, if, if, the, if the supply of gold was too small uh, relative to what the demands were, that would have an impact. And it would take time for prices to adjust because they're sticky. So there could be a, you could see an aggregate shortfall, you know, money shortfall, depression, recession kind of sort situation. Price discovery. Price discovery, yeah. Because there's so, no objective prices. People will have I to think, figure it out in the new. I think you understand it by, by going back to that idea that if they believe that any supply of money would be adequate in the long run, 
somehow that became the argument for why any supply of money would be ag- adequate in the short run too. And that's where they missed, they missed the ball. That's where they missed the mark is that they just kind of just, def- they just got rid of sticky prices when, when talking about busts. Now, not with the bubbles, because you're right. They talk about the path, the path money takes and everything. So it's there. But when it comes to the bust, it's just put aside and we assume mark- price is correct and that we don't need quantity, quantity adjustments won't happen because prices will adjust. Yeah. And it's the so same, honestly, say- it's the same thing with the paradox of savings. If you go and look up the arguments that um, Mises and Rothbard made against Keynes when he talked about the paradox of thrift, it's the same point that, that oh, no, we don't need to worry about savings and linkage, leakages out of the spending stream because any supply of money will be adequate to, to handle, the, the, handle the economic needs. So they had, a, I'll just say they had a blind spot about sticky prices. <laughs> That's to, to sum up your, and I think what you said is, is right on the money because you're right. That is... That is the issue. That's the kind of the core issue here. And in a sense, you know, I think that the, the, the Keynesian argument that if only uh, prices would adjust, but that's kind of an unrealistic expectation on human action and markets and prices and, and knowing that money isn't neutral, it, it seems that um, all these, well, if the world were different, then this, this monetary system would work. It seems like that's what we keep coming to. And, and before we finish, I do want to steer this to blockchain and talk about how, how, you know, we talk about money's not neutral. We look at how um, business cycles or or bubbles are created um, with, with monetary expansion. And, and now we look at, blockchain and we talk about fear uncertainty and doubt of the future how that affects the velocity of money that just screamed to me wow look at the opportunity blockchain poses for humanity as as a medium of exchange or as a money monetary tool that economists philosophers bankers people whatever field you're in have never quite had the the luxury or the opportunity of this kind of transparency. We're talking about a level of transparency for economic planning that's that has never before existed. Right now, you have different people who come into political power at different times of different nations with different uh, you know, currencies that are, are different strengths at different times, world reserve currencies. And it's so flippant. It's so arbitrary in many ways where people wait for the news to come out to, to see who the, what the man behind the curtain says is going to be the interest rate. What does the man behind the curtain say is going to happen with money today? Ooh, are we going to, can we celebrate or, you know, must practice uh, austerity? Um, and, and, and to go to a, um, a system where people actually can understand the, the supply of money to know how much money is coming out and, and how often this is uh, a completely, it's a completely different dynamic. I think that uh, would actually alleviate a lot of that fear. There's clearly an amount of fear and uncertainty in the current monetary system because of the lack of transparency. And I guess that's where I feel that blockchain, one of the huge advantages that this technology has to mitigate business cycles and bubbles is because of that transparency of the supply of money. It's that it's that transparency that allows for calculation to take place for, for more medium, uh, long-term coordination. Definitely. Yeah. And I, well, it kind of, it's a, proof of concept of, of the of the sort of solution that 
Steve and Steve Horowitz and others who support free banking have been looking for for a long time, right? This idea that that yeah, we need we need to have some mechanism for increasing and decreasing the money supply, but we don't necessarily need to have a monopolist doing it. That's that's the key, right? So because the because you always come back to the Hayek the Hayek question: What? How do you know? How does the monopolist? How does the planner know what what the right supply will be? going because it's always future oriented right we, we if we were trying to find the right supply for last year we could look at um look at a bunch of metrics and figure it out pretty easily but when you're trying to figure out what's the right supply going forward when there's policy lags when 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 the policy won't be out for maybe six months have where the first effects of it won't be known for months or a year down the road right you're trying to so you're trying to imagine what the what the environment will look like in the future and then you're trying to project what you should do today to make to make the right amount to make the right choices given what we need what would our future needs will be. That's a very complicated and very haphazard sort of uh, endeavor. And the the so what's the what's the alternative? Well, the alternative would be to have a bunch of private banks that have their own their own metrics that they're looking at, whether it's reserve redemptions or or whatever pri- different price signals. And they would be able to know directly whether or not their their customer base has too much money. Is there's too much? Have they created too much or too little? Right. So there'd be the idea here is that with with competition and and um, and currency that there is actually a a mechanism that answers some of these knowledge questions that the central planners don't have. They don't have recourse to. So I think yeah, I think the incentives that you're talking about with corruption and transparency are huge but even if you if you put aside corruption and, and self-interest and just assume that every that the people who are in charge just give them the benefit of the doubt say they want what's best for us even if that's the case they're facing a dilemma that there's they're facing a set of questions that most humans can't answer and they're not given the right tools they, they don't have the tools to answer these questions we, we can see that with with uh, how much debate there is even at the federal reserve there's debate across you know different there's camp there's the doves and and the, uh, the hawks right different groups with different um beliefs on what should be done given what how they understand the situation so there's there's really no clear answer even the experts disagree and i feel like if that's the case then then um we need to start crowdsourcing these ideas and experimenting with different with different forms of 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 money and not just turn it over to a one size fits all planned outcome that even the planners are unsure about and don't and don't have the tools to to learn. And on that note, can I just jump in real quick and say it means that this is more than just about supply. Okay. Cause because fear and uncertainty over the future of a money, and we look at the history of bank runs and and where fear comes from, it's not just about a supply issue. It's about what's backing the money. It's about the, the faith that people believe that in the future, that that money still will have a backing and still will have a value. And there's also um, that element, you know, really to bring into the discussion. And that's where, again, where I see this, this beautiful opportunity with blockchain, where you have all of these different competing blockchains, where they're not, people aren't subject to, to if one of them turns out to, uh, to be weak or to, to not work, there are their choices, unlike in a legal tender system, where if it's a banana republic, and they're printing money and printing money and printing money, you really don't have a choice, it is what it is. 
And, and now we live in a world where people have choice, where people have choice in these different competing systems. They, they, they have to actually be a value or people will walk away from them. They're not mandated to hold Litecoin. They're not mandated to hold Bitcoin. They're not mandated to hold wise tokens. So we're seeing a, a, a market emerge with a completely different incentive structure. And for me, that's what I'm excited to continue to see uh, develop and why I'm a, I'm a huge proponent. You know, I love how Horowitz was a proponent of liberty and freedom and the benefit that that has for, for humanity, you know, understanding the role in an economy to allow men and women the freedom to make decisions that so long as they can, you know, uh, not um, export those costs onto others, um, so to speak. And, and here we are where people are taking that risk. They're taking that time to build on blockchain and to create opportunities for others. And, and there is no FDIC. There is no bailout. There is no group of society bailing out the decisions of others. It's, it's a very um, uh, beautiful, pure market in many ways. And the fact that it is a market for monetary alternatives, when we are so nerdy about loving to explore the role that money plays in booms and, and, and depressions and recessions. So um, yeah, I, I continue to come back to this. How remarkable is it that we live in a time to see this technology, a tool that provides an alternative, a, an actual solution to what on the standing on the shoulders of all these thinkers and giants that came before us to really uh, have, have a tool, have an opportunity to take that knowledge and understanding for a better future, to create a better way. We, we, we realize the problems when uh, money and the supply of money is left in the hands of a few people. And even if the best of intentions are there, and even if all of the best democratic you know, checks and balances and systems are there to help put uh, those people into power, there are still some necessary issues and, and, it's, and it's an old system it doesn't have to we don't have to continue using old technology when we can clearly see that we've got better tools at our disposal right in front of us yeah and it anyone can e experiment with this from their basement like it's not like you need tons of connections and economic power to be able to build a system and experiment with the system. And if it fails, you know, it, it's, these are like startups almost, if it fails, oh, well, move on to the next one, code, code another one tomorrow night and just keep trying until it works. I know there's some Ethereum. They've just moved to, to control the supply of Ethereum, of ether that every transaction earns a portion forever. It's like, that's, is, is that going to work? Is that, is that the method? I know Cardano has their, their methods for controlling how much supply people validators specifically can get and, and it's this logarithmic curve and, and is that going to work everyone is so different and it's just like is there going to be one on top probably not are there going to be two three four five yeah because right people get to choose their money can we maybe bring it back to how we need competing money sources to to solve this problem of bubbles you brought up a good sure. point Devin. i love that and it reminds me of when ryan remember we we talk about um, uh, the, the days of, of money, commodity backed money in the early revolutionary times where you had Spain and Portugal and England, all printing, uh, currencies that were backed by silver or bronze or gold. You literally can have people exchanging different, um, currencies yet. They're, um, they're able to transact with each other because of that, that, that similar value. And almost, I can almost see this going on here 
with blockchain where like like Devin said, you don't have to have one currency. You can hold on to Bitcoin, Litecoin, Wise. You can hold on to several different cryptocurrencies or digital assets. And it's it's great that people have an opportunity to to not be forced into a choice and to build value in multiple ecosystems. It's not a fight to see who's the winner. It's it's actually um, a, a lot of cooperation and collaboration for people to figure out what works and to make it better listening to 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 the complaints or listen or, or seeing the failures whether it's seeing what goes wrong with the decks seeing what goes wrong with this hack or this bug i i, I see that um this new ecosystem is just moving lightning fast and it's highly responsive it's highly responsive to other communities it's not narrow it's not this warfare system of nations who are trying to come up with the best military technology and keep it away from everybody else. It's an open source. We're talking about a world of transparency, open source technology, where people are learning from each other and making their protocols better based upon, um, you know, what they see happening all around. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I, I'd like to touch on this topic about how we could potentially have a, a reduction in, in the amount of bubble, the number or the severity of bubbles uh, because of crypto, right? That's, that's an interesting topic. So if, if, I mean, I guess you could say on the one hand that not all bubbles are, are the product of inflationary credit expansion. So that's, that's one thing, but, but of those that are crypto definitely would, re- would mitigate that because if crypto became the, like a dominant, you know, monetary system for one it's because it wouldn't be there wouldn't be a one size fits all you know monetary unit there, like we've all talked about there'd be very there'd be probably be a whole a series a slew a bucket of of medium of exchanges that are that are all valid and, and widely widely used so no project would have a monopoly over the whole monetary unit right so if if somebody wanted to change the code and increase how bitcoin was created or how eth was created or whatever they could do that but since they wouldn't be in charge of the the economy's money it would only affect the users of that money it wouldn't be an economy-wide thing right and people would probably would would know about this and they would be looking to get out of that money it's being debased (laughs) put your uh, investment somewhere else right so that's one one thing to think about. So there'd be a, a natural mechanism to check that kind of behavior because there's no legal tender because people have options. You know, the ability it's it's kind of the old story about free banking is that the ability to redeem your notes at other banks limited any one bank's um, ability to print and to inflate because other banks wouldn't just be wouldn't just care to hold these balances of other banks. They would actually redeem them. And so if they printed up too many notes, then those notes would come up for redemption and then the reserves would be drained. Now we know crypto doesn't have a reserve, a reserve backing. It's, it is, it's a token that has a without backing for the most part. I mean, there's issues on why is different is novel, but I'm talking about generally like ETH and Bitcoin. They don't, there's not a redemption medium in these. So that same, same mechanism wouldn't work, but it instead of redemptions, you would just see people selling it. They would just be selling it into stronger projects. So I feel like the ability to inflate, now put aside the fact that code is law and these things are programmed more or less to be deflationary <laughs> more than anything, but putting, putting aside that there'd be a very limited scope for how, for how you could debase a crypto 
considering the people have options and, and that we're, and it's very, it's a savvy community, right? So I think that's the big thing. But the other thing is that the existence of a monetary monopolist, you have all these, you have all these issues with, with um, knowledge, right? We kind of touched on that before. How much, what, what's the proper supply to go forward? Well, they, in times where of instability, where people are, are demanding more money, the central bank doesn't really know what's the proper amount to print. They, we know that there's some amount of money they need to increase to offset the demand and to maintain monetary equilibrium, but we don't know the right amount. In a, in a, now, in a competitive free banking system, every bank has has a, has its own its own books. It's looking at. It's not looking at. It's not looking at the economy wide, saying what's labor doing, what's what's unemployment doing, what's inflation doing. It doesn't consider banks. A bank at, at the level of a bank, at, at the level of a private company, doesn't care about those things, really. They only care about those things as it, as it impacts the Fed's policy and how that might impact them, sure. But they don't directly look at, at these other metrics in terms of like how they understand their loans or what, whether or not they should make a loan or, or not, extend credit or not, right? They're looking at more, more, um, more granular price lo- level things. They're actually, they actually have information local. They have information on the ground time and place specific to where they're at that says this is a good, a good credit risk or it's not, or man, people really are uh, coming in and depositing a lot of money and our savings are really are growing or no, man, there's a lot of redemptions happening or there's a lot of uh, money flowing out, right? So they can see these flows. And so a bank is in, in a better position to make a decision on what's the proper supply of their asset, whether or not they should increase or not. Kind of like a like a it'd be like a cheeseburger company, you know. It's like how, what's the proper if you ask a central planner in Washington how many cheeseburgers should there be in, in in the United States? Well, you, they'd have no idea. But if you go down to to the local Houston Five Guys, they know precisely how many they should be producing because they have they have the metrics for them to acquire that information. So let me bring this back to money. So in a free banking system, the banks themselves are in a position to know what the proper supply of their commodity should be, right? Whereas the a central banker is so far removed from the local, from what's happening actually on the ground and in any particular time and place that they don't know. So I do believe that a free banking system has greater contact. The questions that a free banking system is trying to answer are much easier to answer with real knowledge. And that the result of that would be that the supply of money would tend to be what it needs to be to maintain this equilibrium between supply and demand that we're, we kind of keep talking about. And that that's how you solve, that's how you mitigate the boom and bust, the bubbles, is that you get a better match between monetary supply and monetary demand. And then, so that would diminish the boom spot phase because you're not, because what happens is, is a bust, you, the demand is not, met and then a bust happens and then in the bust people clam- clamor for a, a monetary response some kind of a bailout or qe program or whatever and inevitably they overshoot the mark and produce produce more money more often than not more money than they need and then you end up sowing the seeds for the next round of bubbles and so you just get on this you get on this carousel or this merry-go-round it, it's like an infinite loop you know you you're, you're correcting for the for the, for the depression or the recession, but you overcorrect and you end up putting yourself on a bubble path. And it's, and it all kind of comes back down to knowledge. 
how much money do I need to create to, to meet this demand? Not too little, not too much. It's a sweet spot we're aiming for here. And if you don't have the right tools to acquire that knowledge, or if the framework's not set up to make that possible, then you're probably not going to answer those questions correctly. And then you are going to have bubbles. You are going to have booms and busts. So I feel like that the uh, the answer to how crypto can mitigate the bubble phenomenon it kind of is answered through a Hayekian lens by pointing to how we acquire knowledge about what the economy needs and what institutions or what kinds of banking or monetary institutions make that more possible or less possible. And it, it all comes back down to competition and freedom being, being the best path. Solid. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I'll have what he's having. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, this is a favorite topic of mine, I have to say, uh, monetary, yeah, I, monetary I knew- issues. You, you brought this uh, article up to us uh, in the beginning about Stephen Horowitz and, and uh, this this nuance theory of, of macroeconomics. And uh, I'm glad you did because there's a lot to take away and, and there's a lot that's going on. It's very prevalent right now. Uh, if we look back at this whole conversation, you know, like like it or not, there's probably a bubble developing uh, right now with with the money printing. Uh, and if we if we rely on the past and what these guys have said, these economists, that it's almost certain, right? There's there's too much money in the ecosystem. There's five percent or more inflation per month. Sadly, expect it to to you know be around the corner, a bust. But following that, you know, as as these cryptocurrencies, cryptographic assets, and these economies and, and ecosystems surrounding them develop more and evolve more, we we could see a mitigation of, of this, where fiat money is not printed so readily because many people don't rely on fiat anymore. I know the three of us, we're, we're on the boat. We're, we're going to do our part and, and make sure that these bubbles never happen again. But um, I guess now it's just up to everyone else to, to join us and in whatever way they see fit. You know, Solano, Avalanche, Cardano, Polkadot, Ethereum, pick one. You know, it's, it's up to you now. Very well said. Yeah, it's, it's definitely probably not going to ever leave us whether or not we can ever get away from it completely. But I do believe we could stop being so dumb about it. <laughs> we could do better. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I, I yeah. love it the way you guys said that. And also really, Devin, you you brought up a point and, you know, just made me think of the, we come back to Hayek and knowledge and really it comes down to sometimes we just have to admit the impossibility of what we're trying to do. I mean, um, so that's kind of something we're, we are saying without saying it, but he, um, calculating what should the price of money be or should the interest rate be and and to try to coordinate this from a centrally planned position is an, is an impossibility it absolutely is futile and and that's why we talk about liberty and freedom and people making their own decisions to make their own errors it it's also just a more rational way of coordinating it's a more rational way of of economic calculation given our limited knowledge given our changing wants and desires. Given the nature of reality, some of these institutions and some of these ways we've gone about doing things aren't the most rational or efficient. And, and so, you know, when you mentioned that local local banks being are a, a cheeseburger factory, knowing more about burgers, it just made me think the same thing we talk about banks. A local bank would know more about the credit that's needed. And if it's certain areas that don't need the credit would be able to coordinate and flow that credit where it needs be in, in a more you know efficient manner. So it, it all keeps coming back down to, I see this promotion of freedom and, and, and liberty 
to basically take away our arrogance and pride to think that we can just know what's better for everybody else. And when we promote liberty and freedom, we're actually pr promoting an environment where we can be looked at and we can bear the cost of our own decisions. Yep. And it's based on humility, right? Because you don't make decisions for on matters that you know you're not capable of, of uh, being thoughtful about, right? Or, or effective in a, in a solution, right? So yeah, I always go back to intellectual, uh, epistemological humility, right? Being honest about what you know and, and what you don't know. Guys, another fantastic discussion. A uh, good way to wrap up uh, episode 10. Again, still blown away that we've done this 10 weeks in a row. It's awesome. But any closing thoughts from you guys? Oh, I'll, I think I've I said everything just, I want to say. I, I love these conversations. I'm glad that Ryan <laughs> took the reins at the beginning. Uh, this has yeah. been a passion, a passion topic of ours for a long time. And, and uh, I mean, the amount of time that that Ryan's dedicated to, um, you know, really just pouring through Austrian yeah. business cycle theory, uh, Keynesian economics, uh, you know, Stephen Horowitz's work. There, he, you know, it's 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 a pleasure to spend this time with both of you guys. I, I love to be able to take this time to talk about uh, markets, economics, but you know, it's like, if you go hang out um, at a baseball game with a baseball player, you're going to get a lot more out of it. And, and being able to talk yeah. about this with Ryan and hear his take on this, it, it inspires me. I, it gets me really um, excited to talk about these topics. Oh, and I, I think it couldn't come at a better time. You know, uh, when we first started, studying this stuff this is before blockchain existed and these tools were available and now we're able to talk about the problems and issues with depressions and and business cycles and money ex, uh, credit expansion in the context of a technology that offers a, a choice an opportunity to try something different you know and i i just need to reiterate to everyone listening neither lucas nor ryan have any notes in front of them. This is all off the top of the deck. Like literally we come up the, with these topics maybe an hour or two before. And it's just like, yeah, me, I've everything I say is typed out, of course. Um, so it's just always very, very impressive uh, to, to have discussions with you guys. Oh, thanks, don't, know, don't know how you do it. Yeah. I have to say Lucas has been a, you know, when we were going to school, he was a big part of um, my education too, because we were bouncing things off each other and he would, point me in directions of things I didn't, I wasn't aware of. So we kind of um, help each other, you know, in many ways, complimenting each other. And um, so it's, it's definitely been a team effort. And Devin, you jumped right in brother, because from the moment we met you and, and got involved in sharing our desire to see ethics and, and, uh, you know, equity in cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, that's, that's how we met the wise token. And really, um, it, it's a blessing to be able to keep the conversation going. I just want to take this time to thank you very much for everything you do to put specific knowledge together and to get us together weekly to talk about these topics. Because, you know, for us, it's more about it's more than making money and getting rich. A lot of cryptocurrency and blockchain is about this get rich quick scheme. And I love that we can be out here to talk about the, the knowledge proposition and, and being able to make the world a better place and what this technology really affords us as as a as people. Um, to make to make the world a better place. So I thank you for for you bringing this together, making it happen, brother. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, I would second that. Thank you, Devin. Well, guys, thank you. It is my honor, uh, truly. So uh, we will do this again next week, I guess. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Have a good one, guys.